Okay, two readings today. First is Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, there we go, let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this Easter and for every Easter that has been in the last over 1900 years since the very first one when Christ came out of the tomb and with him brought a new age, a new era of life and joy and peace for those who trust in him. I ask, Father, that now as we look back through the centuries to that day that you would... um, enliven in us that same joy that overtook those first disciples, those first witnesses of the risen Christ. Amen. 
The great writer Leo Tolstoy, who you might know is famous for writing War and Peace, uh, actually found himself in a midlife crisis. Now, this was not a crisis that could be solved with a new car or a career change or doing up a rundown villa somewhere in Tuscany. No, this was a crisis that was much more severe. In fact, Tolstoy found himself at his wit's end because he, despite his incredible achievement in writing, known throughout the world as one of the most prolific and famous people in, the, in the, not just Russia, the whole world, he had lost sight of a purpose for his life. This is what he wrote in his memoirs, looking back. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Tolstoy's problem was that he saw an unreconcilable conflict. He saw that from art to science to learning to relationships, everything that we love and enjoy points to meaning in life. It makes us feel like life should have meaning. And yet the more he searched for an answers, the more he felt like a man lost in a dark wood, unable to find home, because he realized that death brings an end to it all. Now, most people, I assume, don't go around philosophically musing quite to the extent that Leo Tolstoy did. Most of us actually simply don't have the time. But hearing Tolstoy should make us wonder, if the distractions of our busy modern life were not a factor, if we were in fact made to ponder the deep questions of life, death and meaning as our full-time job, and if we had the inclination to do that every day, what would we find? Would we too find ourselves keeping Tolstoy company in his dark wood? Or would we find our way out into the light? And if we did find our way out, what would life in that light look like? Today is Easter Sunday. Or in some traditions, Resurrection Sunday. And I want us to realize today that if Jesus Christ has truly been raised from the dead, then we can stare the deep questions of life and death full in the face and not be filled with dread, not be filled with despondency or despair, but with reverence and joy. I want to ask three questions today about the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, is it true? Number two, if it's true, then does it work? And number three, if it works, then how should we respond? Is it true? If it's true, then does it work? If it works, then how should we respond? So first of all, is it true? Now, I was uh, raised in a Christian home, as Christian as they come. So the Bible in our family life was, as, for, as long as I can remember, just part of the fabric of who we are as a, as a family. 
It never occurred to me to doubt that any part of it might not be true. I just accepted it as fact because my parents accepted it as fact. And for many Christians, actually, that's actually enough to go on. And I think that's fair enough because all four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts, which chronicles the life of the early church, and all the uh, letters of Paul, and the other letters of the apostles, all maintain that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. And for many, that is more than enough to hang their faith. I don't really have an issue with this, actually. After all, we trust in lots of things based simply on the recommendations of trusted people, don't we? That's why we fly in airplanes, why we go to university, why we start a family. Not because we have aerospace engineering expertise or degrees in educational theory or absolutely any idea how to be parents. Testify. But because others have gone before us and so we trust in their experience. But for some, simply taking the Bible at face value isn't enough. Taking simply the word from even people that we trust isn't enough. And the resurrection of Jesus takes place in the Bible. So if the Bible can't be trusted, then neither can the resurrection. So the question is, to what extent can we trust that the gospel accounts, including Mark's gospel, which you just heard read, can be trusted as reliable? Well, actually, far more than most people realize, even most Christians realize. For one thing, the amount of serious study that has gone into the Gospels is massive. There is this whole discipline called textual criticism that has produced thousands of books and papers and PhD theses on the Gospels to determine how reliable they are. And the consensus from scholars, both believers and lots of non-believers, actually, is that the Gospels have been passed down through the centuries surprisingly intact. And this is backed up by an enormous amount of copies and fragments dating back to within decades of when the Gospels were written. In fact, wherever there is doubt about a particular phrase or word, Um, You can actually tell because in your Bibles, or you could just pick a Bible actually, down the bottom is a little footnote that says, or da-da-da-da. So Christians are so serious about um, their belief that the Bible is uh, largely uh, uh, a a faithful copy, a faithful replica of what there was 2,000 years ago, that they're even quite willing to put into their Bibles the bits they're not quite sure about. And so you might say, well, if they're not quite sure about that, then maybe that changes everything. Well, no, because those little tiny details don't really change the big message. The general gist of what we have in the Scriptures can be be trusted as reliable. What about the decades, many people ask, between the events of the Gospels and when they were finally put down on paper, because yes, there was a few decades in between that time. Couldn't things have got mucked up in that time? You know, like a game of Chinese whispers, people say. Well, here's the thing Chinese whispers only works because the person who started the rumor, you know, at the beginning, is there at the end to show how it's got changed. 
You know the game, right? So you, you say a little phrase or something, and then someone whispers it, whispers it, whispers it, and as it, as it goes, it gets changed, right? The only way that game works, the only way it's fun, is because you have the beginning, person at the beginning, right, to say, wow, that's nothing like what I said. It's actually the same with the Gospels. Richard Borkham, who is an incredible scholar, well-respected in, across the field, has argued that in those decades, um, when the, the Gospels were finally put down, onto page, there were still more than enough eyewitnesses around to verify the accounts. They could say, well, that's actually true. I was there. I saw it. Now, finally, there is the issue of the first witnesses of the resurrection. And this is a big one, I think. In first century, uh, very patriarchal society, women were not seen as reliable witnesses. In fact, in Jewish custom, Jewish law, they weren't even allowed to testify in court. So if you were going to make up a story, you would never in a million years put women as the first people to the tomb. You just wouldn't do that. It wouldn't make sense to do that unless it simply was what really happened. And so I think it's a profound statement that actually into a culture where women were not seen as very reliable, were second-class citizens. In the Gospels, we have the first people to witness the resurrected Christ, three women, who actually, as we saw in the reading, were there at the cross as well. When all the men fled, the women were there. The women remained. I think it's beautiful. But someone else will say, well, it's one thing to trust the books themselves. It's quite another to trust the resurrection because people can get things wrong, Right? Couldn't the disciples have hallucinated the whole thing? Lots of people say this still. Well, hallucinations only really work when people fully expect something to happen, so much so that they convince their brains that it actually did, right? No one hallucinates something that is, as far as they were concerned, out of the question. The Gospels show that the disciples were so full of grief and despair They simply were not expecting Jesus to rise again. Even the women at the tomb were not expecting Jesus to rise again. That's why they brought with them the uh, ingredients to um, help dress the body for burial. You don't do that if if you're expecting a fully live person to be there. Others say Jesus didn't really die on the cross, he just fainted. But Roman soldiers were execution masters. They knew how to kill, and crucifixion was their favorite method. Don't forget the spear in the side was the verification that convinced the soldiers, and Pilate as well, that he was really dead. Well, maybe the disciples stole the body and hid it away somewhere. And that's as possible, I have to admit, but doesn't really explain the rest of church history. Many of these men and women went to their graves, went to execution, in some, sometimes in far crueler ways than Jesus himself did, because they believed that Jesus Christ had rose from the dead. They proclaimed that to their dying day. People generally don't die for a lie. And even if they did, even if some did, someone would have cracked and told the truth over the years. So as Billy Graham put it, there is more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than there is that Julius Caesar ever lived or that Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. 
there is a surprising amount of evidence. You might not be convinced by any of these, but it might at least make you think, oh, I could look into that a bit more. Christians believe that the stone was rolled away from the tomb, not so Jesus could get out. Actually, he just walked through the wall. No, so that we can see in and see the grave clothes neatly folded and see that he is not there. But evidence uh, is not the only problem for those with doubts. The problem is that the resurrection may well have some evidence to support it, but it's such an extraordinary claim that that makes it difficult to stomach. As the scientist Carl Sagan famously said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But what Sagan doesn't say is what counts as extraordinary evidence. If the uh, stuff that I've just outlined doesn't count, then what does? Well, um, a summary of Stephen Hawking, the great physicist's thoughts on what makes a really good scientific theory, I think, really helps here. This is what um, one of his biographers wrote, summing up what he thought. Some theories are good boats. They float a long time. We may know there are a few leaks, but for all practical purposes, they serve us well. And some serve us so well and are so solidly supported by experiment and testing that we begin to regard them as truth. In other words, the historical evidence for the resurrection will never be enough to be considered conclusive proof until the day Jesus Christ returns and everyone sees him as he is. But billions of people have willingly stepped into the boat of the resurrection, tested it out over 2,000 years, and found that it has carried them faithfully. It has not let us down. If the resurrection can not only make sense of life, but also provide answers to our deepest problems, then we might begin to regard it not just as a nice theory or a nice idea, but as truth. So that brings us to our second question. If it's true, or if we might consider it true, or if there might be a possibility that it's true, then does it work? Does it can it be carried through experimentation, experience? The other day I got an email from JB Hi-Fi to let me know that I'd won a random prize. I'm guessing everyone's got that email, which makes me feel sad now. <laughs> no, like any good child of the internet age, I was immediately suspicious. Because it generally is true that if something seems too good to be true, then it's probably not. And so I went on JB Hi-Fi's website, and sure enough, there's a whole page dedicated to such emails. And this is what they said. We suggest that you do not respond to or participate in any offer that appears suspicious or too good to be true. But here's the thing, right? Competitions exist. And winners of competitions also exist. And there are prizes out there that actually are too good, might seem too good to be true, but are actually true. So I thought, well, is there a way to check the validity of the message, just in case? <laughs> so here's what I do. Maybe you've done the same thing. You know, there's always a link that you're supposed to press, often a graphic hyperlink. So I copy the text of the link, 
and then I paste it into a note. And if the URL is something like www.youstupididiot.com, then I can be pretty sure that I shouldn't go to there. That's a bad idea. But if the URL is jbhifi.com.au, well, that's a whole different story. It validates it, doesn't it? It makes you think, well, this could be actually legit. Maybe I have actually won a new TV, which is good because I need a bigger one. Notice what the angel says to the women in verses 6 to 7 of chapter 16. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This moment is the ultimate fulfillment of what Jesus always said he was going to do. Die, and then after three days, rise again. But the resurrection doesn't just verify that very specific prediction. No, the resurrection acts as a stamp of truth on everything that Jesus ever said and everything that Jesus ever did, everything he ever promised. When he said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. When he said, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. When he said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. When he said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, that's God, has eternal life. Trusting in all that Jesus did and said brings with it a whole new way of approaching life. And the resurrection validates all of it. It's the answer to Tolstoy's conundrum, actually. What will come of what I'm doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? If the resurrection validates all that Jesus said and did, then it opens up access to new and untold depths of assurance. Assurance is a strange word. What do do I mean? What kind of assurance? What am I assured of? Well, we know uh, as Christians that Jesus died to forgive us for our sins. In fact, lots of people who aren't Christians at least know that much about Christianity. But if that's all he did, then even if we were forgiven, we would still be facing the consequences. Because a dead saviour is no saviour at all. Because if the guilt of sin and the sting of death remained on Jesus in the grave, remained in power over him, then they remain in power over us as well. But if he has indeed risen again, if sin could not stick to him, if death could not hold him, then it is also true of those whose lot is, tie, is tied to Christ's, that sin couldn't, cannot hold them, that death cannot hold them. So when the existential dread comes upon us and we wonder whether our guilt will always hang heavy and wonder whether our wrongdoing might catch up to us or wonder if death really is indeed the end of it all and will invalidate everything that our lives have ever been, then we can look at the empty tomb and be assured that because Jesus was vindicated as innocent, then through faith in him, so will we. That is the link between Good Friday 
and Easter Sunday. But this is not just assurance of what has been done for us in the past. It's also assurance of what will be done for us in the future. Ancient cultures, including the the Greek culture of the first century, assumed that history was cyclical. By that I mean it went around in circles. There were good times and there were bad times, followed by good times, followed by bad times, and over and over again, forever and ever and ever. The old patterns are just doomed to repeat themselves, and we are doomed to be caught up in it and hope that maybe we'll live in good times rather than bad. Modern Western people don't think that, actually. We tend to think the opposite. We tend to think that things will always progress, will always get better and better and better. The economy will grow and grow and grow, and our lives will get better and better, and technology will become more and more advanced until we hit utopia although recent events over the last year may have led some to question that a little bit. But the reason that this view of history changed was because of Christianity. Christians believe that the resurrection of Jesus flattened out the cycles of history and made it possible for real progress to be made. Because no more is humanity doomed to be forever enslaved to the cycles of life followed by death, good followed by bad. Because Jesus' death broke the pattern because his death was followed by life. His bad times were followed by good. And this means, as someone once put it, that death is no longer a brick wall, but an open door. There is life after death because death is not the end. And there is life after death because if Jesus was raised with a new body, then one day so will those who trust in him. There is assurance that your life is not meaningless. What you do really matters because your life will echo into eternity and your real physical body matters. It's precious because God will raise it eternal. This is the Christian comfort when sickness and disease rear their ugly heads, when chaos and conflict mark our lives, when purpose and meaning seem lost and can't be found, when the same mistakes seem to be endlessly made again and again, when the reality of death confronts us because of the decay of our bodies or just because of the decay of the world. This is what makes Christianity work. Because this is the kind of assurance that brings real life and hope and joy into an otherwise fragile existence. It means that we don't have to spend our time distracting ourselves from deeper things, paralyzing ourselves, numbing ourselves from reality. Because instead we are free to live lives of grace, love, and mercy. In fact, as non-anxious presences in a very anxious world. It's a life that is good even when things seem grim. The resurrection of Jesus makes sense. Not just because of its historical evidence, but because those who are drawn into its reality live the kind of lives, increasingly, though not perfectly, that we deeply feel we ought to live life 
with more to it than brief existence followed by endless nothingness. Life filled with confidence, assurance that Jesus has gone before and defeated our greatest enemies. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? So if that's what Christianity means, and if that's how it works, then if that's all true, how would we respond? The three women in Mark's account show us how, actually. These amazing women. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, one of his faithful followers. And another woman called Salome, who we don't know much about. If they were surprised to see this heavy, massive stone rolled away, they were shocked to see this angel sitting there where Jesus was meant to be. Verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Over this last week, I've grappled with this verse because it kind of perplexed me, at least in the way the English translation has given it to us. But I think there's a bit lost in translation, actually, that if we dive a little bit deeper, there's something wonderful here. The word trembling actually has the meaning of a condition of deep awe and reverence. Like maybe the feeling you would get if you came face to face with a world leader or someone of massive influence that you respect. Trembling. Bewildered is actually the word from which we get ecstatic. It's used only one other time in the Gospel of Mark where it describes the emotional response of a family whose little girl Jesus raised to life. Trembling and bewildered sounds negative, but I don't think it's meant to be. I think actually it's something like reverent awe and tremendous excitement. These two words actually describe how we feel, I think, how we should feel when we grasp the reality, the truth and significance of the resurrection, whether for the first time or for the thousandth, thousandth full of reverent awe and tremendous excitement. So family, be filled with excitement today. This is good news. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Sin is dealt with. Death is done. Because he is freed from the grave, so are we. Because he is alive again, so are we. Now in spirit and yet one day forever in body. Let us, like those women, feel again with tremendous excitement that the stone is rolled and the tomb is empty. But secondly, let our excitement be tempered with awe and reverence. Because what was written as a cruel joke at the top of the cross is now announced across the cosmos in glory. Jesus Christ King of the Jews. Actually, this Jesus is now known and affirmed as King of the universe. He created all things. He holds all things together. He is all sovereign, all powerful, almighty. And yet so kind, so merciful, that he stooped to this earth to come alongside us in our muck and mire. He suffered as we do. He died as we do. 
Also that we might be pulled up out of the grime and set alongside him in his glory. This is a king who cannot be taken lightly. This is a king who we cannot uphold one day and then forget the next. This is a king who is worthy of our whole lives. This is a king who demands our respect and our reverence, even our worship. Not so that we can somehow show him that we are worthy enough to be received by him, but because he was worthy enough to die and rise for us. So the appropriate response to all this, to this Resurrection Sunday, is reverent awe and tremendous excitement. But there is one more way to respond. Mark ends with this strange and abrupt line. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. It's abrupt. It's weird. Scholars unsure why. Maybe the ending was lost. Maybe Mark did this deliberately on purpose. In your Bibles, you'll find that there's a whole other section in italics, which basically no one thinks was original. But it meant that actually people who came later were also really perplexed by this, so much so that they wrote an ending. It's strange because we know from the other Gospels that actually the women went and told Peter and his disciples all that they had seen and heard. So it seems likely that what's being described here is not the women's failure or the women's silence, but the women's focus. They didn't run home to tell their friends or family. They made a beeline for where they knew the disciples would be waiting, and they stopped at nothing to pass on this world-changing message. In other words, they accepted the angel's mission. Not because they were afraid. Actually, in this last word is a bit weird. Because the word fear in the Bible is a tricky one because it also means awe. I think they were filled with such awe of the reality of what had happened that they sped forward to tell the story. First to the 11 disciples, and then those 11 to the hundreds of other followers, then to Jerusalem, then the neighboring regions, and finally to the ends of the earth, even to Melbourne. Has the truth of the resurrection come home to us? Has it transformed our lives to be filled with deep assurance of God's kindness, grace, and mercy in Christ? If so, would we take the mission to tell others as seriously as those three women? Would our lives take on their kind of intention and focus? Would we be filled with awe? And would that awe drive us to live very differently? It will. If we truly live out our identity as resurrection people, if we again and again come and see the empty tomb, see the grave, those grave clothes lying there, neatly but empty, and if we look up and see the king who is reigning at God's right hand, this Jesus who is coming again to judge the world, 
How do we know? Because he said so. This Jesus who is vindicated, who is proved, who is affirmed, who is validated by God himself by rising from the dead. If you are here today and you have yet to believe in all this, then I'm glad you're here and you're putting up with me. But here's the thing perhaps for you to go away with. God's mission has always been you. For you to hear about Jesus, to hear the evidence for the resurrection, and to see what difference it can make to your life based on what the Bible says, but also based on what the lives of the Christians around you look like. See what difference it can make to your life. The message is for you. The mission is for you. Will you accept it? Will you at least investigate it? I hope and pray that you will. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to leave just a couple of minutes uh, for silence, just to reflect or pray or hear from God. Let the, uh, what you've heard today sink in. And then the band's going to come up after a couple of minutes and we're going to continue to sing about this Jesus who has risen again. Father, we stand in awe at the resurrection of Christ, this moment when your immense power lifted him up out of the realm of the dead and set him back on this earth. Not the same, actually, but transformed into the kind of body that will last forever and the kind of body that we, will, that we wish for and that you promise us if we believe in him. We thank you that death no longer has sting, that grave no longer has the victory over those who believe. And we ask, Father, that these truths would so affirmed, be so affirmed in us, be so validated in us, that indeed our lives are transformed to no longer be under the power and pain of death and sin, wrongdoing, but free, free to live as we ought, free to live as we long to. Not perfectly in this life, but with the kind of power to get through anything and even come face to face with our own physical death boldly and bravely and even with gladness because it is not a brick wall. It is not empty nothingness. It is eternity with you. So, Father, we praise you for these things. May we be filled with tremendous excitement and reverent awe. Amen. Take a few minutes and we'll sing soon.